grab a Bible. We're in Ephesians chapter 3. Cold out there, you might have noticed. Not as cold as some places. I was talking to David Mercer, trading messages with him, really. Calvary Chapel, Flathead Valley, outside of Glacier National Park, 25 below zero. Balmy this morning. I was talking to the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Craig, Colorado, yesterday. He's a bivocational guy. He's an alpaca rancher, actually. We were talking yesterday evening, and um, I I said, you probably need to get going. You probably need to get ready for tomorrow, because I needed to get ready for tomorrow. And uh, he said, nah, 11 inches of snow coming. We aren't going to have church. So it could be worse. And for me, this isn't bad at all. I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. So like my brain is saying, at last, it's about time. It's been winter for like three months. Where's the cold? But growing up in St. Paul, I might have had winter figured out. I had a confused understanding of church. That's actually my mom's church in in St. Paul. The home that I grew up in, church was something you put on a schedule. Tuesday was Cub Scouts. Wednesday was band practice. Saturday was basketball. Sunday was church. It's just the rhythm of the week. Sunday we went to church, which isn't a bad thing, obviously. It's good to go to church. It, by the way, it, it, for those of you who it was wise to stay home, it's good to stay home sometimes too. But it is good to go to church. It's good to gather. It's good to worship and fellowship and study God's word and pray together. It's good to do that. It's not good when we get in the habit of not doing that. The author of Hebrews warns us what happens when we get in the habit of not coming together, if we neglect, if we forsake the gathering We learned that lesson in 2020. We learned it here locally. The church learned it globally. In many ways, the church is still recovering from that season of neglect. And for us here, it was just a few weeks. Other places, it was months over months. And they learned what we we already know, what the Bible already says, it's good to gather together. But if we think this weekly gathering is what church is, we've sadly widely missed the point. I know, I, I'm pretty sure we're, we're, we're on the same page. We know this building is not the church. I don't think we're that confused. I hope we're not. But if we think what happens in this building once a week on Sundays, twice a week if you count Wednesdays, if you think that the gathering that takes place in this building is the church, we're still pretty confused. We're still falling short of a biblical understanding of what church is. And as we turn to Ephesians 3 this morning, Paul's going to try to straighten us out. He's going to try to clear up some of that confusion for us. Ephesians 3. We left off last week at the end of chapter 2, which I suppose makes sense. And at the end of chapter 2, Paul did a pretty good job of defining church for us. Not a building, he says. He makes no reference to building. Not even a gathering. Church, the way that Paul told us, the way that Paul defined for us, is a new category of people. A category of humanity that didn't exist before the cross. Before Jesus, before the cross, the world was divided into two categories, Jews and Gentiles. 
God's people, Israel, everybody else. That was before the cross. Since the cross, we've had a third category. At the cross, Jesus created a third category. There are still Jews in the world and still Gentiles. But we now have a third category of human, the redeemed, who might have been Jew or Gentile before coming to Christ, but now in Christ are neither Jew nor Gentile. They're the redeemed. This is you and me I'm talking about. The church. At the cross, Paul said last week, Jesus tore down the wall. He erased the distinction that exists in the body of Christ between Jew and Gentile. In Christ, the difference is erased. It's not there. It doesn't exist. We're reconciled to God and, and this was his big point last week, reconciled to each other. No animosity, no hostility, just unity. Those who enter in, Paul says at the end of the chapter, are one. We're citizens of heaven together, verse 19. We're part of the family of God and the household of Christ together, verse 19. We comprise the temple of God together, verse 20 and following. That was last week. And because of all of that, Paul's getting ready for a transition in chapter 3. For this reason, he says, chapter 3, verse 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. And then he stops. Because he realizes he still has more to say about the church. He hasn't said everything that, that the Lord has given him to say about the church. Having explained what the church is, Paul wants to move on. He wants to talk about what the church does. That's where he's headed. And that's what chapters 4, 5, and 6 are largely going to be about, what the church does. But before Paul can go there, before he gets there, it's like the Holy Spirit pulls him back and says, "Uh uh-uh, Paul, you're not there yet. Your readers aren't ready yet. Say more. Paul, say more about what the church is. Camp out here, marinate it in a little bit. Don't rush this. And so Paul does for the next 12 verses. It's not until we get to verse 14 that he picks up where he left off and says again, for this very reason, and goes on to say what he has to say. But verses 2 to 13 are, are sort of within a parenthesis. It's, we don't see it there, but, but it's, it's there. This is sort of an aside, it's sort of a footnote in which Paul circles back and amplifies. He he circles back around and elaborates on what he just finished saying, what he just got done talking about. One commentator I read get kind of nerdy about this, which you know I love. He points out that this is a parenthetical expression. This This is something in parentheses that talks about the church which itself exists in parentheses. Because the Bible begins, early on at least, talking about Israel and God's dealings with Israel. And then God hits pause. At Pentecost, God pushes the pause button and turns his attention and his dealings to the church during this parenthetical expression in history, this age of grace, this church age. But there's going to be a day where the number of the Gentiles has come in, where the Father says to the Son, go get your bride. And we're raptured home, and God again turns, he pushes play, and again turns his attention to Israel. 
So this is, this is what we have this morning is, is sort of a, an expression in parentheses talking about the church, which exists in parentheses. And like I said, it's pretty nerdy. So let's get back to what Paul is talking about. What is it that the Lord slows Paul down to say? What is he, what is he constrained to express here? What's, what's inside the parentheses? Verse 2, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, given to me by the effective working of his power. And that's all one sentence. Where Paul asks, actually pretty, pretty simply, have you heard about grace? There's two big words in our text this morning. Verse 2 to verse 13. Two big words. First is grace. The second is mystery. Grace shows up three times, mystery shows up four times. Two big words, and they go together. Grace, Paul just said, is the answer to the mystery. What mystery? The mystery of how God is going to, how God is, how God will bless the Gentiles. The part of the world that Paul is writing to. How is God going to bless the Gentile world? Because we've known since the days of Abraham he was going to. He said in Genesis 3 and elsewhere that he planned to. In you, God says to Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But how? That was the mystery. And for centuries, it seemed like the only solution, the only path that seemed available was for a Gentile to convert to Judaism, to become part of God's people Israel, and then keep the law that God gave Israel. Wasn't working out so well. Keeping the law wasn't working out so well for anybody, Jew or Gentile. So the mystery remained. How will, how can the Gentiles ever be blessed? That they would was a promise. God said so, Genesis 12, 3. But the means, the the, the mechanism was a mystery. But now we know, Paul says, verse 2. Now we understand the answer is grace. Jesus paying the price for our sin because grace. Satisfying the demands of justice because grace. So God could not only forgive us, but lavish upon us blessings that we don't remotely deserve because grace. The church, you and me, we, us, are all grace. (laughs) Do do you get it, Paul is basically asking, verses 2 to 6. Do you see it? Verse 6, the Gentiles get to be fellow heirs, get to be of the same body, get to be partakers of his promise in Christ. How? Still verse 6, through the gospel, through grace. I'm paraphrasing here a little bit because the New King James is awkward here. The NIV, the New King James sometimes gets, gets, gets cumbersome because it's committed to a word-by-word translation and sometimes loses the forest for the trees. The NIV, 
translates idea for idea and occasionally ends up reading more, more, more cleanly, more coherently. And this is one of those times where I think Paul's point and passion come across better in the NIV, where we read again, verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. He just said three things. Let's look at them one at a time. Heirs together. What does that mean? Well, we read in Romans that we're joint heirs together with Christ. If we're, joint, if we're all joint heirs with Christ, then by definition we're joint heirs with each other. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 1.3. He says, together the church has inherited every spiritual blessing. The entirety of what God has to give, he gives to all of us. Not, you know, 1% here and 1% here, but, but 100% to everyone. Heirs together, members of one body together. This is just what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And it's everything he's going to reiterate to the Ephesians in chapter 4. we got different gifts, different calling, different roles, different offices. We're still part of one another in the body of Christ. We still need each other. We're still growing together and living together with one another. And then Paul adds a third thing, because Paul likes triplets, if you haven't noticed. Some people get mystical and spiritual about that and say, oh, he's just reflecting the Trinity, and I think he just likes the rhythm of it, but whatever. He adds a third thing, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. What promise? Well, go back to Scripture, interpret Scripture. Go back to chapter 1, verse 13. Paul writes about the Holy Spirit of promise the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus in John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit that comes to dwell in us, the Holy Spirit that teaches us and renews us and revives us and gifts us and overflows us with God's love and enables us to be the church. That promise. That's a huge idea, so Paul wants to, to camp out here for a moment and make sure we're, we're laying hold of it. He knows his readers are going to be asking, okay, share us together and the promise that means we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean practically, Paul? Can, can, you, can you take that down to street level for us? And Paul says, yeah, I can. Let me give you an example. In fact, let me use myself as an example. Starting in verse 7, Paul says, take, take, take me, for instance. I'm an example of what I'm talking about. Verse 7, we'll go back to the New King James. I became a minister which doesn't mean pastor or apostle, it means servant. I became a servant according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of his promise. The Holy Spirit has enabled me to serve God. Paul just said the same grace that makes us fellow citizens of heaven, fellow members of God's family, fellow stones that comprise the temple of God, also makes us together ministers, servants, all of us, even me. And Paul is more surprised than anybody, he says. Even me, verse 8, who am less than the least of all of the saints. This grace was given. To me, Paul says, I, I, I don't think he ever stopped being amazed that the, the one who is the persecutor of the church, the murderer of the brethren, was given the grace to serve God along with everybody else. For what purpose? Okay, we're servants. 
The Holy Spirit has made us servants. The grace of God has brought us together to serve. But what are we serving? Who are we serving? What are we doing? Three things, Paul says. Three things he's been doing, using himself as an example. Three things that he's going to say the church is supposed to be doing. Three things we're supposed to be doing. Three things we get to be blessed in doing. Number one, verse 8, preaching, we might say declaring among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable is, is kind of a weird word, but unknowable, inexhaustible, incalculable, infinite would work. We just, we just need a really big word because the riches that we have in Christ are enormous and tremendous and unending. Do a word search on riches in the New Testament sometime. If you do the whole Bible, you'll end up looking at Solomon and his kingdom and everything else. But do a word search for, for riches in the New Testament. And, 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 and it, it goes on and on. The riches of God's goodness, patience, and long-suffering in Romans 2. The riches of his wisdom and knowledge, Romans 11. Riches of his mercy and love in Ephesians 2. Riches of his, of his glory, Ephesians 3. Riches of the assurance of our salvation, Colossians 2. Riches of God's word, Colossians 3. Riches of all the things that God has given us lavishly to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6. And it just keeps going. We don't have time most commentators don't even try to list all of the appearances, all of the examples of riches. They just call out categories. Well, we got saving riches and sanctifying riches, relational riches and practical riches, temporal riches for this lifetime, eternal riches that go on forever. And what's Paul's point? We get to tell the world all about all of them. We get to declare to all of the world all about all of the riches we have in Christ Jesus. We get to declare them. That's Paul's first point. And his second point is that we get to demonstrate them. We get to show the world what we have in Christ. We get to make all see, verse 9, what, the fellow, what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus. The fellowship of the mystery. We get to demonstrate it. What's the fellowship of the mystery? It's us. Same mystery as verse 4. Jews and Gentiles, Israel and the nations, people with nothing in common, now having everything in common through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jews and Gentiles, one in the church. The wall of hostility removed, loving one another. That's what it is to be the church. We get to tell the world about Jesus, verse 8. We get to show the world Jesus through the love we have for one another. John 13, 35. By this they will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Kent Hughes, whose commentary, commentary sometimes I love and sometimes not so much, um, I like his commentary on Ephesians. And, and in it, he tells the story about a pastor in Belgium who was frustrated because Belgium was hard, still is, hard-packed soil, resistant to the gospel. They've got deep, deep roots in Catholicism on the one hand and just aggressive, zealous cult evangelism on the other hand. So 
with, with Catholicism on one hand and cults on the other, it seemed like Belgium was, was for all intents and purposes, impervious to the gospel. So this pastor tried something different. He pulled together a group of believers from all over, anybody that would come. He had Americans, Dutch, Swiss, uh, uh, Belgian, moved them into a house together and had them live together for seven months, which caused all kinds of friction. Cultural friction, language friction, dietary friction, theological friction. But because they were believers, that drove them to the word and it drove them to their knees. It drove them to the Lord and it birthed radical love. And before long, people in that community were referring to them, the people who lived in that house, as that crazy group that loves each other. Which is supposed to be the church. Supposed to be the church everywhere. Supposed to be the church all the time. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, Jesus said. If you have love for one another. Words can describe the gospel. Our words can declare the gospel. Love demonstrates the gospel. Demonstrates it to the people of the world. And here's Paul's third point. Verse 10, it demonstrates it. It puts it on display to the angels in heaven. Which is crazy, but that's what Paul says. Part of God's intent for the church, for you and me, is, verse 10, that now the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That's angels, principalities and powers. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. What did Paul just say? He said the angels learn about the love of God by watching us. God is teaching the angels about his love by showing them you and me. By showing them the church, which is a staggering idea, but it's not the only place we come across it. 1 Peter 1.12, Peter says that our salvation and the grace that made possible our salvation is something the angels desire to look into. Other translations say long to look into. Literally, it means they stoop down, they work hard, they squint to examine. We fascinate them. God created a world he knew would fail. And he did it to demonstrate his love. He did it to demonstrate his love to the people that he created, yeah, but also to the angels who existed before we did. The angels God created before he created us. And we can imagine them watching, him, them watching Jesus on the cross, saying, look, look, it's happening. He's, he, he, are you watching you got to be watching. His love is literally pouring out. But what Peter implies, and, and what Paul flat out just said, is the angels are still watching. They didn't stop at Calvary. Even after the cross, they're watching us, and they're seeing in us the outworking of what Jesus did on the cross. And they're saying to each other, it's working. People are believing and in believing, they're becoming like Jesus. Look! 
They're loving. I sounded like Gail there. <laughs> I guess there are worse things. Man, I'll drink some tea and fix that. <clears throat> when Paul talks about the manifold wisdom of God on display, verse 10, he's talking about us. He's talking about the bride of Christ. He's talking about the church. We're God's display case. What is he displaying? Manifold here, the idea is many colored. Think, think Joseph's coat of many colors in the Old Testament. But we know it's, it has to do with more than color. It's diverse, it's rich, it's textured, it's multifaceted, it's multidimensional, it's complex. That's the wisdom of God. And that's the tapestry of grace that God in his wisdom has called together as his church. God, who is the spirit of wisdom. Paul is saying, we're God's display case. We display God's grace and wisdom for all the world to see. We're the fulfillment of God's plan. To prove his love, to display his love. To humans and angels alike, do you get that? He's asking the Ephesians this morning. Do you see that? He's asking us this morning. In his grace and wisdom, God not only saved us, he enlisted us. He made us his ministers, his servants, and that's the ministry that he's blessed us with. That's our assignment. Those are our marching orders to declare the gospel of grace to the nations, to demonstrate the gospel of grace to the world, and to display the gospel of grace to the angels. And how do we do that? We do it together. Do not miss this, family. This is, this is the underlying assumption in what Paul is saying. This is the through line that he's weaving through the entire passage. Miss this and you miss it all. Rewind. End of chapter 2. Paul announces in the church, we're citizens of heaven together. Family of God, together. Temple of God, together. And then he goes chapter 3, verse 6. We're joined heirs with Christ, together. We make up the body of Christ, together. We're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, together. Why? So the world can hear, verse 8, so the world can see, Verse 9, so the angels can observe. Verse 10, the mystery of God's grace expressed by the community that is God's church. The love, the togetherness, the fellowship, the unity that only God could accomplish is what declares God's glory. Which means we got to stop thinking of church as a place that we go or a meeting we have scheduled. We need to think about church the way that Paul talks about church. Not as an event on the calendar, but as the community that we are. The community that we're actively devoted to, the community that we're consistently participating in. And every church that I've ever been a part of, Minnesota, Kansas, New Jersey, other places. There are people who get that, and there are people who fight that tooth and nail. Every church I've ever been a part of, there are those that show up every so often, and you say, hey, I haven't seen you for a while. Well, you know, we kind of float around. 
We're not tied to any one congregation. We're, we're part of the universal church. And, and, and on the one hand, that's true. Anyone who is saved, anyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ is part of the church universal. That's not wrong. But to stop there is not God's plan. Pause. If I'm, if I'm poking anybody or if I'm about to, not my heart. I didn't get up this morning and say, oh, it's a good morning to rebuke people. <laughs> I came here to teach, and I hope that you hear my heart in this next section. And, and if you disagree with me, I hope we can talk when I'm done. Because I'm not, I'm not coming at anyone, I promise. I'm just unpacking the word. And I think it's interesting that in the word, in this section, Paul both begins and ends talking about how he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Verse 1, he uses that phrase, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus, by which he means he's not where he is because the Romans decided to lock him up or because the Jews decided to conspire against him. He is where he is because God freed him up from the ministry that he was doing and assigned him to ministry in Rome. That's the place that God called him, the place that God placed him. That's how he starts the section, verse 1. And he ends the section saying, don't be bummed out about it. I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. This is my part, Paul says, in what we're doing. This is my current assignment in our shared ministry. Paul's reminding us God has a place for every one of us. A place, a position, an assignment, a role, a calling for every one of us. And that thought makes our flesh angry. Because role implies responsibility. Calling suggests commitment. And commitment makes our flesh uncomfortable. Makes us feel trapped. Makes us feel like prisoners. Which is why I think Paul says what he says. And I get it. I do. No rocks in my hands. I'm not throwing stones. When I moved back to New Jersey, I was part of the floating church. And when people called me on it, I puffed out my chest and said, I'm part of the church universal. When I moved back to New Jersey in 96, it wasn't to get away from the cold in Minnesota. I like the cold. It was to get away from people who had hurt me in the place where they'd hurt me. Over three or four year period, virtually everyone that I was close to, anyone that I'd, I'd let get close to me, really know me, really see me, either attacked me or abandoned me or both. And some of it was my fault. Some of it was just a consequence of my own sin. Some of it was a consequence of accepting Jesus and getting saved from my sin. But, but, but taken all together, when I left Minnesota, I was pretty busticated. I was pretty broken. And when I moved halfway across the country, I knew that I needed to get plugged into a church. But what church meant to me was a place where I could find good Bible teaching, a place where I could worship alongside like-minded believers, a place where people would pray for me if I asked them to and leave me alone if I didn't. It did not entail any kind of commitment in any way, shape, or form. I didn't want that. I didn't want to be known by anyone. I didn't want to be expected anywhere. I didn't want to be seen or noticed. I didn't want people paying attention to whether I showed up or not. I read an article this week comparing church to Starbucks. 
and talked about how the 21st century church in a lot of this country, people approach church like they approach Starbucks. They, they like it if you get your name right and, and, and your order right. They, they like it if, if, you, if you serve up what they're looking for, and then that's where the relationship ends. After that, it's a place to be. It's a place to enjoy what is being served. And that was me. If I showed up to one church one week because I heard they had a cool guest speaker coming and then I went to another church another week because they had a rock and worship team and I wanted to rock out with Jesus and I went to a different church on a different week because the pastor was starting Revelation and I wanted to see if he was going to mess it up. I did. Because I was determined to not be a prisoner. I was free in Christ and I was going to prove it. I was going to make the most of my freedom. I was free and I was safe. At least I thought I was. I don't know if I thought about it exactly that way, but I know that I was determined not to let anyone get close enough to me to hurt me. I wasn't going to be a prisoner. Except that I turned out to be a prisoner of my own fear. <laughs> Going where I wanted to go, doing what I wanted to do, back to verse 13. Where was the glory during that season of my life? Plenty of things that I was missing out on that I didn't realize at the time. Consistent instruction in God's word that comes from going verse by verse. Not hopping around in one book one week and one book another week because you're at one church one week and one church another week. I was missing that. I was missing the discipleship and accountability from older brothers. I was missing encouragement and prayer and correction from people who had real visibility into my actual life. But, but see, that's all about me. What Paul would point out this morning is in vowing not to be a prisoner of any one local church, I was missing out on the opportunity to fulfill the central purpose of church, which isn't about me, it's about others. It's about declaring the gospel and demonstrating the gospel and putting the gospel on display. That's why Paul refused to think of himself as a prisoner of Rome, it's why he said, don't feel bad for me. Because it wasn't about him, not in his mind. It was about others. And it was about the others that were in the sphere that God had called him, the, 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 the sphere of influence that God had placed him. That was glory. What was the world watching Sorry, what was the world learning by watching me during that season of my life? Not much. What was I teaching the world about God? Not much. What were the angels understanding better, scrutinizing my life? I can't think of anything. Because I wasn't living in community. I wasn't thinking of church as community. But as a result, I wasn't doing the thing that we're put here to do. I wasn't giving anyone an opportunity to see love. Not love for me, not love from me. There was no love for one another involving me because I was determined there wouldn't be any one another. There would just be me. And Paul's reminding us this morning that's just simply not God's plan. To those who would say what I used to say, well, I'm part of the church universal, you're right, that's true, you are. Praise God. But God's plan for the church universal is to deploy us and 
call us, places, collect us into local church fellowships to send us as ministers in places where we can declare and demonstrate and display God's love in substantial, ongoing, up close and personal ways. Ways that challenge the unbelief of the world and draw people into the church universal through faith in Jesus Christ. I know your game, Pastor. I know your angle. You're looking for commitment because you need bodies. You want to know you can count on people for tithes and offerings. You want to know you can tap people on the shoulder and send them down to the nursery to change diapers. Everything else is just smokescreen. I promise you it's not. If my word means anything this morning, nothing could be further from the truth. We don't have formal membership at Calvary, and that's for a reason. God doesn't want anybody doing anything out of guilt or obligation, and and that's one of the things that formal membership tends to foster. It's not the only thing, and there are some good things that come out of formal church membership. But, but, but we run away from it because we want to run away from guilt and obligation. We want to run away. Giving to God's work should be a joy. Paul says that in both his letters to the Corinthians. Ministry should be an overflow of the Holy Spirit. That's the consistent teaching of the word. And those things will be true if we're in the place that God has called us with the people that he's called us to. We'll know joy. And, and, and we'll serve out of an overflow of the Spirit. If we're in the place that he's, he's sent us, the place that he's determined to meet us, the place that he said, hey, this is the best place for you. This is, this is the place where I want you to be the church, like, like, the, like the fellowship in Belgium, with, with people that, that you know so that you know how to serve, people that you know so that you know how to pray people that you get close enough to to offend so you'll have to ask for forgiveness and they'll have to learn to forgive. The place where we learn each other well enough to love each other really well so that we can not only declare but demonstrate the love, live the love, put the love on display for the world and for the angels. So am I asking anyone to make a commitment to giving or serving or anything at Calvary? I'm absolutely not doing that. Am I I urging everyone to pray and seek the Lord and wait on the Lord until you've heard from the Lord about the place he has for you to call home? Yeah. Am I I urging you to seek the Lord and and let him show you the people that he has for you to call family? I, I absolutely am doing that. Because he's doing that. God's doing that. He tells us so in Hebrews 10, the verse that we considered at the top of the service. He tells us so in Acts 2, where he talks about the apostles and the disciples having all things in common. He says that all the way through the New Testament, all the way to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, that begins with Jesus writing seven letters to who? Seven local fellowships. God tells us that he has a church home for every one of us in every one of those places in Scripture, and he tells us the same thing this morning in Ephesians 3. He's called us to a place to be the church together. He's called each of us to a place 
where the beauty of God's grace is displayed through us together. He's called us to a place where the manifold wisdom of God, verse 10, is made manifest in unique ways through unique people (laughs) with unique gifts, loving each other in each specific unique context. Saying to the world as they do, Saying to the angels of heaven as as they watch, and to anybody else who's paying attention, this is the gospel. Look at us. This is God's grace. Do you see us? This is the mystery revealed in us. We are the church. Are you paying attention? Because this is God's love in action. Lord, teach us to be that church, that fellowship that community. Knit together with your love, committed to knowing each other and serving each other, praying for each other, practically meeting one another's needs, spiritually forgiving each other, asking forgiveness of each other finding grace for each other, proclaiming the gospel through the love that you give us. Not manufactured, not contrived, not phony, not fake, but spirit-birthed, spirit-empowered, overflowing love for one another.